1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. I'm reading from an old location. Sorry, that's because I was holding my cell phone. My apology. <laughs> this is a, I do have the Bible, I promise. <laughs> this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, that's where we're at, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And Father, we just humbly ask as always, Lord, just for a measure of your grace now that we might continue to worship you by just submitting our hearts and our minds to the truth of your authoritative and spirit-inspired word, Lord that you'd give us each an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular portion of your word as we continue to study and survey this book together that you've given to us. Lord, speak by your spirit through what you have spoken already by your spirit in these words. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, John Maxwell, who some of you may know, who spent many decades really focusing on the topic of leadership specifically in speaking as well as in writing numerous books, he said this, I quote, he said, everything rises or falls upon leadership. Everything rises or falls upon leadership. And I believe that holds true in many arenas. I think that holds true in family life. I think that holds true in business. I think that holds true in society and with civil leaders. I think that holds true in school systems. And perhaps nowhere is leadership as vitally important as well as as influential and impactful as in the church itself. It's important in the church that we recognize that it is essential to first and foremost know and respect the spiritual reality that God's word teaches that our Lord Jesus is the head of the church. This is the Bible refers to a spiritual body. We're all different members of the body, just like a human body. And the Bible teaches that Jesus is the head of this spiritual body. He's the authoritative one making decisions and providing direction when things are operating according to God's design. Let me say that. And the Bible tells us that Jesus himself declared firsthand while on this earth, he said, I will build my church. And he said, and the gates of Hades won't prevail against. In other words, Jesus directly called it my church and said that he would be the one building it and that Satan's tactics and activities, though they come against it, he said they won't prevail against his church. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the chief shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And so it's important that we as the church function accordingly to what the word of God says is how the church is to operate. That being said, the Bible also teaches clearly that Jesus selects and empowers by his spirit and appoints human leaders to serve as what we might say under shepherds, under the chief shepherd and the overseer of our soul, under shepherds humanly function to help care for the Lord's flock. And that's why in Acts 20, the apostle Paul, when he assembled together the elders of the church of Ephesus, and remember, this is where Timothy is in the region of Ephesus, he instructed the elders in that region of multiple different churches saying this, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers 
to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So Paul exhorted the overseers, the elders, to recognize that they needed to keep their own lives right before God, that they needed to recognize that the Holy Spirit had given them this blessed privilege to shepherd, to provide oversight, he says, to the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, that it is a blood-bought bride. And that's very serious to recognize the extent of cost that God was willing to go to and that that should be kept in mind. Peter, writing as well as an apostle in 1 Peter 5, said this, the elders who are among you I exhort as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, referring to Jesus, you will then receive a crown of glory. Now, it's in light of those spiritual realities that God now here in his word, in our passage, gives us in 1 Timothy 3, his qualifications for spiritual leaders among the church. So as we look at 1 Timothy 3, and particularly this passage this morning, we're getting God's qualifications for spiritual leaders to both identify those who are called to spiritual leadership. And again, that's all that we do if we're doing things properly in the body of Christ. We are recognizing those who God by his spirit has already called. We're not checking, candidating, qualifying. We're simply recognizing what God has done and saying, okay, it's evident that God's spirit has already done this and we're just acknowledging it in a sense on the human level. So it's how we identify those who are church leaders. And it's also really a Bible basically a biblical passage, I believe, to keep us in check as the body of Christ to allow someone to continue to provide leadership. Because in the same way, someone may be a good business leader for a while, but then they may need to be fired from a company. I believe the word of God gives us enough credible evidence that if someone is providing pastoral leadership and they don't behave in certain ways, there comes a time where they should step down or they should be removed as well. That if the qualifications of God's word are not being upheld, that God would not want his flock to continue to be abused in an unhealthy way. Again, John Maxwell as well in regards to leadership simply said this, and I think it's good for all of us to consider as we jump into this. He says, a leader is one who knows the way, who goes the way, and who shows the way. They know the way, they go the way themselves, and then they show the way to others. And I say that for this reason, lest you tune out this morning thinking, oh, there's little to glean for me here because I know I'm not called to be a church leader. I'm not called to be a pastor or an elder. I want to just say we all as human beings, and particularly as Christians, have a degree of leadership. All of us have some degree of impact and influence to people around us in our life. We're all called to be examples in our lives. And Jesus' leadership style was simply humble servant leadership, caring for people, seeking to provide direction in caring for those around us. So I think we can all learn principles to better lead and better influence those around us, to be good examples to those in the sphere of influence God has given to us. And this passage, of course, also gives to us very wise insight so that we can be selective in who we choose to follow as Christians. Because truth be told, though Jesus is the head of the church and we should all be following Jesus, practically speaking and according to the word of God, we all to some degree follow human leaders as well. So we should be selective in regards to beyond Jesus, who we would follow and allow to be functioning as a church leader or a spiritual leader in our life. Now, we've mentioned many times, chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that this book, particularly in the word of God, gives to us instruction how to conduct ourselves as the church. So it's very evident that this specific letter in the New Testament tells us how the local church is to function and to operate. And so here we get now qualifications for spiritual leadership in regards to how the church is to function. And utilizing this passage as well as others helps us establish and maintain healthy church leadership. And healthy church leadership translates into healthy churches. And the opposite happens as well, sadly. Unhealthy church leadership will translate into unhealthy 
churches. Verses 1 through 7, we'll see this morning, give criteria to identify the primary function of those who provide spiritual care and oversight to the congregation. We refer to them as elders or overseers or pastors. These are terms that refer to that spiritual care among the church. Verses 1 to 7 describe those individuals. We'll see next time verses 8 down through verse 13 give criteria for those to be appointed and to serve in the realm of providing practical duties and maintaining the practical affairs that are a part of church life as well. And we'll see that next time together. Look with me back in verse 1 in our text. He says this, this is a faithful saying. And as I briefly stumbled over my words a few minutes ago, you remember that's a phrase that repeatedly comes up. This is a faithful saying. We've seen that a few times in our letter already, which simply means this is a reliable statement. He's saying this is a trustworthy statement. Pay attention here. That's what the Holy Spirit's telling us. And then he begins to say, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position, the role, the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. So he's going to talk here about the position of spiritual leadership who should be engaging in spiritual leadership, and what that will involve. He begins by talking about there, notice, the position of a bishop. Now, that word bishop, not a real common word we use today, it's the same term often translated in the New Testament as well, overseer. And that probably makes a little bit more sense to us what an overseer is. It defines one who watches over others in care and provides supervision through direction and giving guidance and making decisions. Other places in the New Testament, we also find the term for spiritual leaders. The term there is often used at times as well, elder. And the word elder in the, the Greek is basically a term that speaks of a spiritually mature man. It doesn't speak of someone necessarily who is chronologically older or mature because there are people who may be further along in age or even further along in years that they've been a Christian, but there are others who may be younger chronologically, but they have more spiritual maturity. The issue is a spiritually mature man, one who's developed growth and maturity spiritually. And then another term we will see in the New Testament as well at times for leaders is the term translated on occasion, pastor, which speaks of the shepherding work of shepherding a flock which is a reference to God's people. So we see these terms in the New Testament, bishop or overseer, elder, pastor, and they're often used interchangeably in the New Testament to basically refer to a spiritually mature man who, who serves in the office of providing oversight, an overseer to shepherd the flock of God. They're what we would refer to today as our church leaders, our pastors, our elders, our overseers. And notice he indicates once again here in verse 1, as we saw in great detail last week, in connection to chapter 2, he stays with this idea of the leadership role of the elder, the overseer, the pastor, that it is something that is reserved for men or for the males. Notice he says there in verse 1, if a man, very evident again, if a man, he says, that is a particular man among the men desires this position or role. We saw in chapter 2 last week where he used the definite article, the men, referring to the males, in connection to or in contrast to the women or the females. And there he talked about how from creation of humanity before sin ever entered into the world, God had always had a prescribed order. Before sin polluted our thinking and our attitudes as human beings, by God's design, there was a prescribed order of male leadership in function in the home life, as well as among what would be the church. Though women can lead, as we talked about, in all other arenas of society, they can be great business leaders, they can be civil and political leaders, they can be leaders in other capacities and do a fantastic job. The role of elders and pastors is exclusively reserved in the church for men, for males. Paul clearly stated, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. The idea was in church function. And so this is why he says here again, reemphasizing this as he now comes to the criteria for such, that if a man desires the position of a bishop, he says, notice verse 1, he desires a good work. So it's important here, notice, to understand what the responsibility 
truly involves from God's view to one who would function in the role of an overseer and elder a pastor. He says, if a man desires to be an overseer, notice what he says, verse 1 in the text, he desires a good work. Don't miss that last word, work, a good work. That word desires that Paul uses there does not speak, understand, of unhealthy ambition, kind of lusting after something with ambition that's unhealthy. The, the term literally, when you look at it, it literally is a term that means to be stretched or to strain after something, which is a very fitting term that someone is willing to be stretched in this good work. They're willing to allow their life to undergo strain to a degree to fulfill this good or noble work from God's perspective. And that's the idea. A good work speaks of a noble labor. One man translated it, an excellent difficulty. I think it's a fitting description. (laughs) It's an excellent difficulty. It's excellent, but it's a difficulty. And it describes a man who in love for Jesus and people is willing to be stretched personally to undertake this noble work, this beautiful labor of shepherding the Lord's flock. And indeed, something uh, like what he's describing here of the overseeing role in the church, I can tell you firsthand, it will stretch a person because it involves a difficult work. It involves a heavy responsibility. It's not the type of work that comes with the privilege of on-off hours in a schedule where you can punch out and just be sort of off at a certain time of day. Now, look, It's important to take time off. I'm not diminishing that. But to a degree, when you're an overseer, when you're a church leader, technically, you're always on call. You never really get the complete freedom to be completely off. You're always needing to be available. And at times, God may need you to be open to interruption. It's a work with a responsibility that, therefore, you have to navigate properly. And so it is hard. It is an excellent difficulty because it's hard to kind of completely disengage, not only just in the activity of it, but even just in the mental, you know, uh, kind of awareness of things and what's going on. And so it's not about longing after desiring to be a bishop. It's not about longing after the same way you would long after something in a secular environment. Oh, I, you know, I have this ambition for that position. It's not longing for a title. It's not longing for a career path. That's not the idea here. It's someone who has a desire within, a pure-hearted desire for the good and noble work of serving God's people by providing servant leadership like Jesus to help shepherd the flock, and they understand it is an important task to care for the Lord's blood-bought church and this flock that Jesus loves and died for understanding that as well as I use this term shepherding as God uses it as well as an analogy that shepherding a flock is hard work and it requires to be done that work properly and effectively making sure a flock a shepherd must make sure a flock is fed and well fed or else they become unhealthy a shepherd must make sure to genuinely care for the just the, the needs in general to provide care that the flock remains healthy to tend the flock the various needs and the issues and the illnesses and things that arise both individually and collectively among the flock to provide oversight and guidance to lead the way so that the flock gets to where it needs to be and stays away from where it should not be. The shepherd must protect the flock and help those with a tendency to wander at times. At times, the shepherd must get to know his own sheep well because they recognize that by knowing a sheep well, you know how to relate to that particular sheep in a different way than this particular sheep. Or when that sheep bites this sheep, how do we now solve that? Because that sheep bit this sheep, but this sheep has that personality and that sheep has this personality. And so how do we bring harmony back to the flock? And again, that being said, not only considering the fact that there are wolves in dangerous places and dangerous people. So again, it is, it is a work that certainly entails something. And look, let me just say this morning, there is nothing inherently wrong with having a pure-hearted desire to want to be a leader, to want to provide leadership. The key is, and please hear me on this, the key is, is that in that desire you want to serve more than you just want to lead people. Let me say that again. 
It's a desire that you want to serve more than just be able to lead people and tell people what to do and boss people around and be the one to make decisions and be the one to be recognized as the one in charge. Again, what was Jesus' model of leadership? Jesus said, the greatest among you is the servant of all. And it's a good thing to engage in the work, but it is a work. And I feel I can credibly say after about 25 years in that capacity at three different Calvary chapels, one that I was serving at and trained at and ordained as a minister at, and then the two that I've had the privilege both in Pennsylvania and here to plant and to pastor, uh, I can assure you it is work. And it's a demanding work physically and mentally and spiritually. And that's not even taking into consideration the spiritual warfare. It is a demanding work. And so therefore, in light of that, because it includes this work of managing difficult things and serving the Lord's people, that's why God implements, and we see it right here, a stricter criteria in the word of God for those who want to lead in the church to keep things healthy because they have to make important decisions and to ensure, listen, that the right individuals are engaged doing this because it's a serious matter to God. And God knows the workload of it, and so therefore God does give a rather strict criteria to in some ways make sure it's the right individuals who can sufficiently handle that load. Look what he says in, in verse 2 there. He then says, a bishop then must be, and then he begins to live the list, blameless, the husband of one wife. But notice there, the overseer, you might want to underline or circle those two words in verse 2 there, must be. This is very important. Before he gives the list, notice he says the overseer, the elder, the pastor must be. In other words, these are required things in the evaluation process. These are not things that God gives as a list, and it could have been a much longer list if the Holy Spirit preferred to do such. He's saying these are not things that they would be best, I mean, if they were present in your elders. Uh, it would be, you know, maybe extra beneficial. You'd probably have a few less church problems if some of these things were evident in your pastor's life. No, he says here, these are things that are attributes and qualities that must already be observable in the life of a man that you would consider, consider to allow functioning in that capacity, to purposely identify these spiritually mature men that are qualified for handling this particular role that God gives of church leadership. These are qualities and characteristics of the spiritually mature man who God says would be capable to lead among his church and to take care of his flock. So they should be two things. First of all, they should be things initially evidenced, right, in the life of someone who would end up being considered or permitted to function as an elder or overseer or enter into pastoral ministry. So these are the things with initial evaluation we take into consideration, not their resume, not what Bible college they've been to, not how much experience they have. Oh, you, no, the word of God is what we use to use as a criteria to consider. And then secondly, as I mentioned earlier, these are also things that must be not just to consider, but to continue. These are things that must be, God says, if they're going to serve in this capacity going forward over time in longevity, these must be ongoing things upheld in their life and in their role if they're to continue to remain qualified to continue to function in that capacity or else it would be better for them to either willingly step down and focus on their own personal spiritual life and health or to be removed if they won't step down again for their own soul's sake and for the sake of the influence it has upon the flock and the damaging effect it can bring. So let's look at the list of qualifications here for the elder, the overseer, the pastor, those who'd be teaching the word, providing pastoral care. And you notice, hopefully by the reading, that the primary focus is mainly all on character. It's really hardly anything at all about skills, talents. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it's all about character. That is the main thing, the primary emphasis in this. He says the elder must be, first of all, he uses the term blameless. Now, that term does not mean sinless, nor does it mean flawless. First of all, that would be unbiblical, and that's impossible 
The Bible says we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter where you're at in your spiritual maturity. You still sin on occasion. You're still going to make mistakes. So when the, the word of God uses this term blameless at times, don't interpret that as meaning sinless or flawless. The idea of the term means one without a reason to be blamed because they are engaged in ongoing wrongdoing all the time. The idea is they're not someone who there's proven reason for accusation for wrongdoing against them in their character and conduct and things that they're involved in, perhaps in their personal life. They're not engaged in doing wrong things on an ongoing basis. They're living above reproach. Because see, if someone is engaged in an ongoing practice of sin, while at the same time they're wanting to be a leader or they're seeking to be a leader, and they're clearly blamable for they've got this thing going on over here that everybody, look, it's clearly you're blamable for doing these sinful things or you're continuing into you know, some private sin in your life or something. God's word says they're not qualified to lead. If they can be blamed for something that's clearly evident, then God says leaders must realize that's not acceptable. Why? Because a leader must be held to a higher standard of conduct. It's just simply an essential thing. He secondly says here that the leader must also be, notice, the husband of one wife. Can I draw to your attention again? He doesn't say the wife of one husband. He says the husband, male, of one wife. Committed, the idea is committed to one woman. The Greek, literally, the husband of one wife, is a term that means a one-woman man. A one-woman man. That's the idea there in the language. That is emotionally, sexually, he's a one-woman man. He doesn't have an appetite to want to pursue another woman. He's not the individual who at some point in the weakness of his flesh is going to go lustfully after another woman and be unfaithful to his bride. He's a devoted and loyal husband, one who has eyes and desires for the one woman who he stood before God and committed himself to in marriage He's not the type of individual as a man. He's not a, he's not a flirt. He's not the type of man that's a, a pervert or a seducer. He's not the type of man that's prone towards manipulating women. And he loves and respects his wife and his marriage, and he protects that. The idea is God is saying, look for a man who's got a solid marriage. Look for a guy who's in love with his bride, and he's only got an eyes and a heart and a desire emotionally, sexually, for one woman. He's a one-woman man. He's got a good, solid marriage. God says this is crucial in regards to the character. Thirdly, he mentions here in verse 2 that the elder overseer must also be temperate, and that word temperate speaks of showing moderation or self-restraint, particularly in regards to not being given to excess or to extremes. So when a person is temperate in character, they're a person who's able to refrain from going overboard. The idea is they're an individual who understands limits. They know how to live within boundaries. They know how to be balanced. They're not prone to excess here. They're not prone to going to extremes, whether that be in their theology, whether that be in their thinking, whether that be in how they operate. They're a well-balanced individual. We get the term we, we hear at times tempered, like tempered glass or tempered steel, right? And tempered glass or tempered steel through a process becomes strong and therefore it provides very good stability. And that's the idea here. Someone who provides stability because they're a well-balanced, temperate man is someone who maintains composure and handling matters. They don't fly off the handle, they don't have struggles with, you know, when things get intense with just blowing up and erupting. They, they maintain composure. They can use wisdom and solve situations. This is the kind of character God says you want in a person who's going to provide leadership because there's going to be tense situations. There's going to be sloppy situations. There's going to be times when things get a little chaotic and they have to be someone temperate who can keep composure and make good decisions and lead through the storms and so forth when necessary. The next thing that he mentions here in verse 2 is that the leader must also be sober-minded. And the idea there, sober-minded, speaks of someone under control, someone thinking clearly. A, A sober person is thinking clearly. They're able to be alert to what's going on. Uh, They're attentive, therefore. They can address what's important without neglect or distraction. 
because they're clear thinking, they're sober-minded, they're able to be serious. And that's kind of the idea there of the term when you look at it, someone who's able to be serious, especially when it is important at times to be serious. Look, this is not saying that somebody can't have a sense of humor and laugh and enjoy life. But what it is saying is that the elder, the overseer, can't be a person who's just a clown. They can't be the type of man who's just a goofball or a goof-off or always wants to be doing life like a party and everything's always just goofing around where they're preoccupied wanting life to be a party and they're at times prone to acting childish or immature and just kind of being that class clown kind of personality. They need to be a person who realizes that spiritual matters and eternal matters are serious. And so therefore, they need to be someone who is able to be a serious person, a serious-minded individual, particularly as it pertains to taking care of people and making sure things are proper spiritually. So God says, in that church leader, the pastor, the elder, you want a serious-minded man someone who can be attentive to the concerns regarding the welfare of the flock. The next thing he mentions in our list, verse 2 going on, is that he also must be of good behavior. In other words, he can't just talk about what's good. He has to actually practice what he preaches. He can't be someone who just puts together good lessons but doesn't live out a good life and behave in a godly manner in their lifestyle decisions and conduct. The Greek term literally speaks of one who is orderly. And that's the idea there. He should be an individual, a man who lives a well-ordered life, which also speaks of the contrast. It should not be the type of man who you look at their life and you could say, man, his life is disorderly. His, his life is chaotic. It's, I mean, it's just always, it's here, it's there, it's that, it's this, we're doing this, this, we, and, and they're just, you know, like a squirrel, and just life's just like this, and their family's like this, and, and, and God says, whoa, we don't want that needs to be a well-ordered individual, someone who lives a well-ordered life. Again, leaders should not be those who are behaving poorly in their personal lives, and they shouldn't be behaving badly in how they relate to people either. They should be well-ordered individuals who live orderly lives with good behavior demonstrated. He then goes on to mention as well in verse 2 as well that the leader must be hospitable. And the term there speaks of being welcoming to strangers. That is making people feel comfortable. That's the, the term there. Making strangers feel comfortable. So it needs to be someone who's caring with people. And the idea would be then taking time to interact with anyone. It doesn't have to be your chum or your buddy or someone who seems more important, that you're willing to just give time no matter who they are, if I could say this way, like Jesus was, right? They wanted to, sh- you know, shoo the kids away from Jesus. and just, Come here. And, and again, Jesus didn't matter whether it was a small child with green snot running out of his nose, bouncing off the walls, right? Or whether it was Pilate, or he just was willing to spend time with anyone and anyone he interacted with. He made feel just as important and special in that moment. Again, he wasn't considering status of people. And this is the idea that the elder should be a man who shows kindness without partiality. He doesn't show favoritism to anyone. He's not impressed by anyone, nor does he look down upon or dismiss anyone. Leaders should be those who highly esteem every person as important. And treat everyone with that same degree of importance, even as God would. Again, if they disregard and mistreat certain people, and and then they're really special with other people, to me, what that says is they're not really a leader. I call a person like that a manipulator. When somebody is more prone to, what can I get out of this person, and I can't get anything from that person, that's called a manipulator. That's not called a leader. That's somebody who works people, not who serves people. And so God says they should be someone who makes everyone feel loved, welcome. They're a hospitable nature in their personality. They're willing to interact with anyone. And then he comes to this statement here in verse 2 where he says they also must be, look at the last part of verse 2, able to teach. Now take notice. There's the only thing in a long list of character traits that speaks of his ability. Only one skill is mentioned in this entire list that the elder, the pastor, one who serves in this role of spiritual care among the flock, 
that they must be apt or able to teach. In other words, they have an aptitude to instruct and to guide, to help lead other sheep in right paths, to help them find God's path. The elder or pastor, by spiritual calling, must have this one ability to both understand, prepare, and communicate the truths of God's word, to help provide teaching and instruction, both formally in teaching of the word of God, as well as informally in ministering to people one-on-one, even as Jesus would do. At the woman at the well, where Nicodemus, again, some of Jesus's greatest statements and the most wonderful passages in the word of God are not Bible studies he taught with crowds. They are things he said with individuals as he was willing to just give God's word and instruct on an individual level. Again, the Bible tells us that the elder, the overseer, the pastor must have this aptitude spiritually from God to properly handle the word of God with accuracy and to trust its authority. Ephesians 4 says the pastor teacher is given to the church to equip the saints for works of ministry. Paul's going to write in the second letter to Timothy that the, the, the elder, the overseer, must be able to teach and correct. And isn't it interesting? All God asks for, considered here, is ableness, an aptitude, which comes from the Spirit of God's enable in any way, and then just a willingness to let God use that. In other words, that the one who would function in this capacity as a church leader senses, okay, God has given this gift by his Spirit to prepare his word, to share and teach his word, and they're just willing to be utilized. And it's important to recognize, and I want to draw your attention, that God speaks primarily, again, as I've said, all in this list about character. Very little about ability, about education, about training, about gifting. God, it's almost as if you can sense God in his heart saying, if you just give me a godly life, if you just give me a man with character who walks with me and is a genuine character you know, with Christian integrity, God says, I'll do all the rest supernaturally. <laughs> God says, if you can just give me a character, if their character's right, all God needs is an aptitude, (laughs) just an aptitude to teach, because God says, I can work with that. By my spirit, I can do the rest as I flow through a person and empower and bless what they do. Yet, let me just say before I move on, think about what the modern church mainly seeks for in pastoral figures. We want the best, highly gifted, eloquent communicators. I mean, and I say this for this reason, I'm greatly concerned that today in the body of Christ, a lot of wonderful, fruitful ministry is going to be missed in the next generation should the Lord tarry, because there are men who have solid, godly character like this list describes, and they have an aptitude and a willingness to teach, but yet they look at what happens among a lot of what is considered the modern church and those who are presenting, and basically they look at that and they say, I could never be a pastor because I can't do a round off back handspring off the stage (laughs) while quoting a Bible verse. I guess I'm not called. I mean, just because I can't do that. I can't pace back and forth across a stage and and speak in rhythm and rhyme and and pause to dance or something and wait for an applause. I just, I'm not a performer. I've never was good at drama. I could never be in the school plays. I just, I, I just, I don't know if I'm called to be a pastor. When the reality is, is God is saying, if you just give me a character, just a character, I don't care if you're the blandest vanilla in the world, God would say. If you can just give me a character and you can have integrity in your life and integrity to handle and teach and explain the word of God, God says, my spirit can anoint that and can minister to people. And here, that's so interesting, God says such little about skilled presentation, but it's very evident he wants shepherds that will care for his people who are just willing to speak his word. And that one aptitude, just the aptitude to teach, it is essential in the pastoral role. Verse three, he then goes on to say, not given to wine. So now he's gonna talk about some things that the overseer elder should not be doing. Here he says, not given to wine. Again, someone handling the important responsibility of overseeing the church, leading and shepherding God's flock, they cannot be a drinker. Leviticus chapter 10 tells us in the Old Testament, the priests, when they were serving God's people, they were not permitted to drink. 
It tells us in Proverbs chapter 31, it was not wise for kings to drink intoxicating beverages, lest in their rulership they err in their judgment and pervert their use of the law of God. And so look, this is very important. In church leadership, there must be this willingness, I believe, if you want to be a leader, to abstain from the freedom a Christian may have to drink alcohol. And if I can illustrate it this way, it's sad I would have to say such, but if you're about to get a surgery this week and your surgeon looks a little nervous, are you going to say to your surgeon, why don't you just throw back a few cold ones, get your nerves under control, then go ahead and operate on me? <laughs> of course you're not going to tell him that. Or do you want your airline pilot, when you walk on your flight to get ready to try and get to the destination safely that you want to get to, do you want to walk on and find that your airline pilot is buzzed? I'm not drunk. I'm just buzzed. Of course not, right? How much more when we're talking about the seriousness of the ministry of the Spirit of God, a pastor, an overseer, an elder needs to be alert and available to minister in an effective way at any given time. So they can't be under the influence of substances when the welfare of God's ministry and the flock is essential. Leaders, my personal conviction, and you're free to disagree, need to be willing to forego certain Christian liberties to answer a higher calling. Look, if you're here this morning and you want your freedom to drink as a Christian, that's fine. That's a personal decision and conviction between you and the Lord. I would just recommend don't become considerate of ever being a church leader unless you're willing to let go of the freedom for a higher calling and to say, I'm willing to let go of that freedom so that I can let my life be useful in a more effective way. He also mentions here, not violent. The idea is the pastor, the elder can't be someone who's cruel or harsh. A violent person harms people. A church leader cannot be a person who has anger issues, who's violent in their words or their attitudes, screaming in people's faces or bulldozing people or destroying people and plowing over people. Again, God says, no, that, that, that's not going to work. They can't be the kind of man who ruins lives to get what they want in a given situation. And they're willing to violently destroy a life or destroy the lives of lots of people because they want their agenda or they want to prove themselves right. God says, not a healthy thing if that exists in a man's life. He also says the elder overseer can't be greedy for money. The idea is perversely driven for more wealth, always wanting the nicer thing, the next material benefit in some way, unable to be content. You know, they can't be a person who can just utilize God's resources properly. Instead, they start to pamper themselves with the resources of God or enrich themselves. Again, 1 Timothy 6, we'll see when we get there, deals a great bit more extensively on that very subject. He says also the leader there, verse 3, must be gentle. We might say just like our Lord Jesus. Remember Jesus said of his temperament that he was gentle and lowly in heart. So there should be that Christ-like reflection. There should be a gentleness. Again, keep in mind here, Jesus had great authority, but he was still gentle. And a spiritual leader must recognize they have authority from the Lord to lead, yet they still can be humble and kind. They still can be gentle and tender in dealing with people in genuine love. They're gentle and caring with people. They're sensitive when they're helping. They make allowances for people's weaknesses, and they have that gentle disposition to be patient rather than harsh or forceful in their attitudes. He also mentions here the elder and overseer in verse 3 cannot be quarrelsome. In other words, not prone to arguing and disputing. You have to be someone who's able, even though they're a leader at times, to be a team player and understand how to problem solve and healthy you know, reconciliation of issues. A person, let me just say, who always tends to be engaged in quarrels and disputes and arguments, I would say not a real good person to lead. If there's someone who's typically just stirring up the nest more than solving problems, usually not a good person to give leadership to. And then he mentions lastly in verse 3, they also cannot be covetous. In other words, always wanting the next thing. The person who's chasing after the, what's the next thing? What's the newest thing? Again, because they'd always be driven for novelty and distracted rather than keeping this ship kind of stably going forward. Verse 4 and 5, he then says, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence for, and this is the application, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of 
the church of God. So notice, a spiritual leader proves his ability to lead initially and must maintain that qualification by demonstrating leadership first and foremost where? At home, with their family, with their wife, with their children, with the first congregation God's given to them. The greatest proven ground for men as spiritual leaders, I tell you folks, is to look at their family. Because that's where the proving ground comes to pass. A good and godly leader demonstrates his ability first in his private and family life. And notice with me, if you would, in verse 4, he doesn't say one who rules his own house and stop there. Because let me just say this. Anyone can just rule his own house like a harsh dictator. Just like people can rule countries and rule... It's not just ruling your own house, because any harsh dictator can do that by force and fear. He says in verse 4, one who rules his own house well. The idea is properly, with a healthy use of leadership and authority in an appropriate way. They're effective and fruitful. A man who provides leadership well in his family, it will be evidenced in his family life. It will be obvious in the raising of his children, and it'll be indicated he understands how to lead properly, and he'll show he's a true leader because his leadership will begin at home. And that will be the greatest evidence it will display this guy knows how to lead. He knows how to take care of people. He knows how to problem solve. He knows how to you know, take good care and lead a family in a right direction. He's been tested there and proves faithful. Now, this, this does not mean, certainly, that his children may not grow up and err in some ways, because look, we know the word God teaches that people have a free will. God's first two children went errant, did they not? And God did everything right as a heavenly father. So children have a free will, and even in good and godly parent, a child can rebel, but the question becomes, if the child rebels, how does the father handle it? How does he process the rebellion of his children? Does he navigate it appropriately and stand for spiritual truth and provide leadership in those hard times? Because that will be essential because there'll be lots of storms to navigate on a spiritual leadership level as well. So certainly as children are small, as they're young, it should be evident that he's ruling his house well and that his children, verse four, are in submission to his authority and his direction and that they have reverence and respect towards their father's authority. So the idea is that you want to find a man who is a father is raising his kids in a manner where his kids are orderly, where they respect their father's words, they respect their father's direction, they're listening. When their father gives an instruction, they don't just disregard it because they respect and in a submitted way, they respect the father's leadership. And so their children are, are reflective of that, that he's leading well when they're little. But then as children begin to age and become adolescents and teenagers and young adults, the idea is his children will respect him to the degree that they will live in submission to his authority and that they will recognize, look, God has given to you leadership in our home. And so even through those teenage years, they should still have a degree of submission to authority. And I like that he uses the word and reverence. The idea there is deeply respect. And to me, this is a very beautiful indication. The idea is they deeply respect their father. And let me just say, pay attention to what children, whether young or teenage or young adult, pay attention to what children think of their father as a man, as a leader. Do they have a high degree of respect for their father and how they relate to their father? Do they have a high degree of respect to their father in what they think of their father, what they say of their father? Because when children don't honor or have respect for their own father as a person, I tell you that is a definite warning sign. It's a definite warning sign. And I'm not saying kids can't be rebellious, but when a child has no respect toward their father, that's a real caution flag right there. So he says, they must have a good respect among their children, leading their own family. Then he makes the application, verse 5, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? See, the church is a, basically like a big family, is it not? With lots of kids. And if I can give one illustration, spiritual ministry and pastoral care and leadership, it's a lot like spiritual parenting. It really is. It's trying to care for and lead and guide, sometimes offer counsel and correct and solve problems. And so he says, if someone cannot prove at home they know how to take care of and lead their own family, then he says they're definitely not going to be taking care of a much more complicated family with way more personalities. <laughs> 
and way more kids running around and, you know, things going on. And it would be better, God says, don't engage in church leadership. It would be much better fix things at home. Focus on your family, God would say. Don't take an extra bigger family on if you haven't yet figured out how to take care of your own. Verse 6, he then gives another criteria. He says it cannot be a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, you fall into the same condemnation as the devil. The word novice there speaks of a newer convert, a newly planted individual, one who's not had sufficient time to gain experience in spiritual matters. And again, there's not a time frame set on this, but God just says, look, it takes time to gain experience in walking with the Lord. Someone who lacks experience in walking with Jesus or they lack experience in serving the Lord in smaller capacities, God says, be careful. It takes time to develop experience in anything. And the same way with spiritual life and in spiritual service. And premature promotion into spiritual office can lead to major problems, God says. And what's his primary concern? Pride. You see what he says there? Can't be a novice or an inexperienced person unless being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. That is a man become just like Satan who perversely did what? Lusted for glory and he enjoyed power and Satan wanted to be in control and an unprepared leader whose inexperience and character will become defiled in thinking and end up exalting themselves. They'll have a sense of inflated self-importance. They'll begin to abuse their power. They'll just want to be recognized. They'll want to be the center of attention. And they'll basically become someone who, though they may appear spiritual, it's horribly abusing and mistreating people, which is exactly what Satan does. And so God says this is the caution against that. We don't want someone to fall into that danger of pride where they act more like the devil and really nothing like Jesus. So he says be careful of that premature promotion. And then lastly, verse 7, he says, moreover, he must also have a good testimony among those who are outside. In other words, he should be respected in the community. He should be someone of people, that guy's a pastor? Really? Come on. I did work for that guy, and he blah, 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 blah. Or I, I just saw that guy over such and such bar. Or, you know, that guy's a pastor? And he says, no, no, it should be someone who in the community, not just outside, in the church, Outside, they're respected in the community, lest, look what he says, they bring reproach on the name of the Lord among those who are outside. So he doesn't want to fall in reproach and the snare of the devil. Interesting, he concludes with this warning of an unhealthy church leader. He says, entering into the snare of the devil. That term, the snare of the devil. Can I just say this morning, think about it with me. What is the snare of the devil? I would say the snare of the devil is this, deceptively acting spiritual, but really only to serve your own interests while all you're doing is just destroying people's lives. Acting really spiritual. The devil acts really spiritual. But you're acting really spiritual just to serve your own interests, and you're really just destroying and ruining a bunch of people's lives. God says that's why it's really important to be careful and selective in regards to a spiritual leadership, in regards to those that we allow to lead us and who we're willing to follow. Again, everything rises and falls on leadership. And for all of us this morning, these are great truths and just principles. God, help us to be more like this as individuals so we can be a good influence to our children, to our co-workers, to fellow Christians, good examples, and that God can lead through all of our lives people closer to Jesus and on right paths. Let's stand together.